How many of you guys like crime TV shows? Not just crime, but crime, t- crime TV shows. I was waiting to see who raised their hand for just liking crime, and then I was going to call the cops on you. Okay, so you guys have all seen true crime types of TV shows and courtroom types of shows. So I want you to imagine you're a part of a jury, okay? Just put yourself in that position right now. You're on a jury, and a man has been murdered, and the main suspect is his next-door neighbor. What are the evidence? Whoa. What is the evidence? The evidence is he lives next door, and he knows, the next-door neighbor knows, about the spare key the guy keeps under his doormat. So that's the means. What's the motive? The motive is the next-door neighbor had been on record heard by his friends saying he was jealous of his neighbor's car, his neighbor's house, his neighbor's dog would keep him up all night barking, and his neighbor would sometimes blow leaves over the fence into his yard. So there's the motive. What about more evidence? Well, there's a recording that someone did of a conversation between the neighbor where the neighbor said, you know, I could just kill that guy. So that's, that's a lot of evidence. The murder weapon was an axe from the man's backyard, the neighbor. So a lot of things point to him doing it. Did he do it? What do you think? Did he do it? No. no. <laughs> I was going to ask, are you sure? So you have doubts. Wow, you have doubts even before I gave you the other side of the evidence. Here's the other side. The ex-girlfriend of the man who got killed, they found her DNA all over the murder weapon, and the gloves fit. Yeah, anyway, reference. And she's a lumberjack, so... She knows what she's doing with an axe. This is all made up. Um, it's not real. But I'm trying to show you guys something that in any jury type of situation, usually a jury has to vote all together, and the jury has to come to a conclusion with everyone knowing the person's guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. That means there can be no doubt. There can be no uncertainty. And that's, that's what doubt is, really. Doubt is uncertainty. Um, and doubt is something that a lot of times isn't really accepted at church. At church, it's not like we come and say, hey, let's all talk about our doubt. In fact, for a lot of people, church is a place to kind of fake that you have everything together. It's kind of a place to kind of show up and, and act like you have no questions. Uh, a lot of people think that, you know, good Christians should have no doubts. You should just believe everything the Bible says and never question it and never have any doubts. But, but you know what? That's... kind of unrealistic because I think every single one of us has doubted. I think every single one of us has had times in our life where because of circumstances, we've wondered, man, I'm not totally 100% sure that everything I believe about God is 100% true. And this can be hard because for doubters in church, a lot of times doubters can be looked down on. People can say, how can you doubt? Like, how? just believe. Just, just be quiet. Just stuff your doubts deep down and just believe. God works in mysterious ways. That's kind of like one of the blanket Christianese answers to anything strange that happens. Have you ever had that? You go up to someone and you're like, man, there's this crazy trial in my life and I don't know what to do. And the answer is just, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And it's like, it kind of gives you this idea of God as like this puff of smoke. And it's like, I don't know what he's doing. And I don't know if I can trust him, but I just know I'm not supposed to doubt him. See, as Christians, when we doubt, a lot of times doubt can cast a shadow 
over us. It can be this thing where it really darkens our relationship with the Lord and with one another because we're afraid of doubting. We're afraid of voicing our doubts. And so a lot of Christian kids hide their doubts. They never ask questions. How many of you guys hate being the one? Like, you know that moment in class where your uh, math teacher comes and they're scribbling out equations and they're going so fast and they're like, okay, now here's your homework, go do it. And no one in the class knows anything the guy's talking about. How many of you guys hate being the person to raise their hand and ask? Yeah, why do we hate it? Because we don't want to look foolish. Because we don't want to look like we don't have it all together. And so we love that one kid in class who always raises their hand for everything. That was me. I was always raising my hand and asking questions. Here's the problem, though. A lot of times, we don't raise our hands. We don't ask questions. When we're struggling through the Christian life and we have doubts or insecurities or questions, we don't often ask them. And what happens is those doubts kind of burrow into our hearts and they fester and those questions never get answered. And then here's what happens. Here's the reality. Kids like you, students like you go off to college and because your doubts have never been expressed as questions and answered, you end up getting destroyed. Your faith gets torn apart because now there's a whole group of people who don't love Jesus and don't believe in him and have arguments that sound convincing against him. So now you're sitting in college and you're hearing this professor tell you what a joke Christianity is and now your faith is destroyed and you don't want to be the one Christian in class and so your views start to shift and you begin to lose your faith and this happens all the time. This is why I've always wanted our group to be a place where questions aren't considered bad, where doubts can be expressed, where you can say, hey, listen, Aaron, that thing you taught on Sunday last week, I'm not so sure about that, where you can say that and not have me go, you terrible, terrible sinner, just believe because God works in mysterious ways. No, no. What I want to show you guys today is what is God's response to the doubter, because I'm sure there's many of you in this room who have doubted, and whether you're open about your doubts or whether you hide them, I want to show you how does God respond to the doubter? How does Jesus respond to the doubter? I believe God wants today to move us beyond the shadow of a doubt into the light of truth. So we are going to pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 19. If you'll remember, last week, the disciples were freaking out because Jesus has died, but then in a miraculous flash, he comes back from the dead and he appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to this woman who he loved, this woman who he had shared so much with, this woman who he had cured of demon possession. He appears to her. She's the first one he appears to. And Mary runs back to the disciples, and she tells them, Jesus has risen. But it's interesting because we don't read the next verse saying, and the disciples jumped up for joy and were so excited and so happy. No, the Bible doesn't say anything, which implies that Mary comes and says, Jesus is back from the dead. And the disciples all say, mm, Mary, I don't know about that. I'll see it or I'll believe it when I see it. So they're about to see it. Let's look in John chapter 20, verse 19. It was late that Sunday evening and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Then Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. After saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. 
Then he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive people's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. My Lord and my God. Do you believe? Because you see me. How happy are those who believe without seeing me. In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you may have life. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful, God, that you are here with us and that you have a message for those of us here who struggle with doubt, which I think is all of us. Lord, help us to receive this message. Help us to absorb what it is that you want to say to us, God, because you are real and you are powerful and you love us and you've brought us here today for a reason. So I pray, God, you'd speak through your spirit in your name. Amen. So how does Jesus respond to doubters? How does he move us beyond the shadow of a doubt? Well, a lot of people kind of look at verse 27 as their stock response to someone who doubts, which is Jesus saying, stop your doubting, believe, and they'll say it that way. They'll quote verse 27. Well, Jesus said to Thomas, stop your doubting, believe. But I think it's really important to realize the heart of Jesus. What's the, what's the context? You, you saw it there in the video. Well, what's the context of the passage? Is Jesus yelling at Thomas angrily? You doubting Thomas? No, no. It, Thomas is a guy who's upset and he watched Jesus die on a cross and he's upset and and all the other disciples they got to see Jesus before him he was out of the room he wasn't there that day so he hears from them Jesus is back we saw him but he's so traumatized he's like I won't believe it until I see the holes in his hands and the hole in his side does Jesus show up and say you want to see him here here no no he shows up and he says Thomas I'm here look look Thomas I love you I'm here why? Stop your doubting. Believe I'm here for you. His words are spoken in love, not anger. Guys, a lot of times doubt can be an obstacle to a relationship. Think about it. If I say to my wife, I love you, and her response is to say, I doubt it, then there's a problem with our relationship. Think about the nickname Doubting Thomas. How many of you guys have ever heard the nickname Doubting Thomas? If you've grown up in the church, you've heard the nickname Doubting Thomas. I think it's important to note, this wasn't Jesus' nickname for him. 
Like, it wasn't like Jesus came and all the disciples were there in the room, and Peter's like, you know, Thomas isn't here. He'll probably doubt it because he doubts everything. And Jesus is like, oh, that guy's such a doubting Thomas. No. Doubting Thomas is a nickname we came up for Thomas because there's like two stories of him doubting in the Bible. But that's not Jesus' name for Thomas. You know, Jesus calls Thomas beloved, brother, friend. This story being included in the Bible is a beautiful acknowledgement, I think, that followers of Jesus can and do doubt. I want to share a little bit of um, something that a friend of mine, Evan Wickham, wrote on doubt. He says, I was standing with a friend in a forest in the mountains of California. It was a starry, moonless night. The midsummer air was warm and clean. Satellites visibly traversed the vast expanse of the dome firmament. He likes to get a little wordy. I love it. Um, The sky didn't have to compete with the city lights. My friend and I were Christian high school students at a Christian youth camp. This is the same camp that we all have gone to. This is back when he was in high school, so years and years ago. Um, My friend and I were a Christian high school students at a Christian youth camp singing worship songs to Jesus around a bonfire with hundreds of other students. I asked my friend, do you ever wonder if any of this is real? I surprised myself with my own question. Pulling his eyes away from the sky, he responded, if any of what is real? Evan says, Jesus, Christianity, the Bible. You know, I'm a pastor's kid. I was raised in the church. I don't know any different. I'm starting to wonder if it's all real. Do you ever wonder? At first, my friend didn't say anything. Then he smiled, turning his gaze back to the stars and said, I like to wonder. And that was it. For the first time in my life, I saw the twin cravings of wonder and doubt as just that, cravings. This is really profound, guys, because all of us crave truth. All of us crave knowledge. When you grow up as a kid, a lot of times you just believe what everyone around you says, but as you start to get older, you start to reconsider the world, and you start to think, is everything I've heard my entire life true? Guys, we're all in our journey, and on our journey, we're all going to wrestle with doubt. What are some ways that we doubt? Well, I've written down a few. Some of the ways we doubt, one of the big struggles for me was wondering, you know, will I ever find love? That was a big thing for me in high school and junior high. I I asked all these different girls out, and I got rejected so many times, and and I just wondered, you know, I, I really doubt that God has someone for me. I really doubt that I'll ever get married, that I'll ever find true love. Sometimes we wonder, you know, if God is really good, why do we suffer? Sometimes we we think, you know, God can't help my parents' marriage. Sometimes we think I'll never be good enough. I'll never measure up to the standard. Sometimes we'll think, why is this such a big deal? We'll doubt. People in our life will tell us, hey, these things are not good for you. And we'll say, well, sex is kind of fun. I kind of doubt that it's really a big deal. Or, you know, drugs feel really good. So I really doubt that it's much of a sin as everyone says it is. Or even um, right now, a big thing is homosexuality relationships, and that's one that's huge in culture, and there's this doubt that floats around where the Bible says, this is sin, and our response is to go, yeah, but if people really, really love each other, then why is it sin? And we doubt. Another way we doubt is, how can I really know the Bible is true? Uh, You know, there's all these other religions. How do I know that they're not true? If God is loving, why do people go to hell? And why is this happening to me? Whatever you're struggling with, why is this happening to me? I've been a really good person. Guys, it's a universal struggle. I think in this list, I've probably hit almost every single one of you in a doubt that you've had at some point. You know, I don't know one follower of Jesus that I look up to or respect who has never doubted in their life. In fact, Thomas Merton says this, if 
the man or the man of faith the man of faith who has never experienced doubt is not a man of faith at all. Now, some of you guys might kind of have a legalistic bent, uh, and, and you might think, well, that, that doesn't make sense. You know, that's not true. Not me. You know, I've never doubted. The chances are, if you've never doubted, you've probably never really thought deeply about anything. You've probably never really considered deeply the issues of your faith and explored into them and really studied the scriptures for yourself. Uh, for me, when I, when I really get into the Bible and read it carefully, I, I'm presented with a lot of things where I'm like, wow, this is much more complex than what I learned in Sunday school. And if we don't read it carefully, it can lead to doubt. It's easy to say doubters are weak. It's easy to say, you know, doubters just need to get their act together. They just need to believe and and just be like all the characters in the Bible who were good and believed everything. And and that's what we think faith heroes. You know, we we think, you know, faith heroes of the Bible are just these amazing people that we look up to who are perfect. They're perfect. Well, consider this. If you've ever thought that. If you've ever looked at characters in the Bible and thought, why can't I just be like them? Why can't I just believe as hard as them? I think it's time that we took a look at the Hall of Faith. Have you ever seen the Hall of Faith? It's in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's all these stories in the Bible of people who believed. And that's why they get to be in the Hall of Faith. They believed really hard, and they followed God really dedicatedly. And because of that, they got this place in the Hall of Faith. And we're supposed to look at them and think, man, these people are so faithful, and they're examples to us. So let's see, who do we have? We've got Noah. Noah, by faith, built an ark, saved the human race. That took a lot of faith, absolutely. Abraham, by faith, left his land of Ur to travel to a land that he didn't even know and and offered his son. God told him, sacrifice your son Isaac, and God actually didn't have him kill Isaac. It was a test, but think of how much faith it would take to drag your own son up a mountain. That's a lot of faith. Sarah, Abraham's wife, by faith, had a son in old age. God says, hey, you're 90, but you're going to have a kid, and she ends up by faith, having a child. Uh, Jacob, by faith, blessed his grandsons. Uh, Moses, by faith, left royalty to lead God's people to freedom. He, he's this prince of Egypt. Uh, he's an Israelite Jew who gets grafted into the palace, floated down the river in a basket, and he ends up basically the prince of Egypt. He's this undercover Jew. No one really knows. No one really cares. And he's got all this power. He leaves his place of royalty to lead the Jews out into the wilderness to escape the Egyptians. Think about how much faith it would take to leave a palace life, basically to go from being a millionaire to a guy who has to live in the desert. What faith? Rahab, by faith. Rahab was this woman in Jericho who protected Joshua and Caleb from enemies. She was actually a Jericho woman herself, but she, she believed in God. She believed in Yahweh, and so she sacrificed her relationship with her own town to protect these spies, Joshua and Caleb. Gideon, by faith, defeated an army with no weapons. God says, hey, Gideon, toss your weapons aside and, and follow me, and, and he does it. He trusts God, and he gets rid of all the weapons, and his soldiers actually defeat this entire army by doing nothing but blowing trumpets. It's an amazing story. Look it up sometime. Uh, Barak, by faith, led troops into battle. Samson, by faith, defeated the Philistines. David, by faith, defeated Goliath and became king. So all, there's all these heroes of faith, and we look at it, and we go, man... I wish I could be like them. They trusted God. It's really easy to feel inferior. You know, I bet they never doubted. I bet these guys never, ever doubted. Well, that's where you'd be wrong. Because the hall of faith is not only a hall of faith, it's a hall of failures. Who do we have? We've got, you've seen their good sides. Look at their bad sides. Noah, by doubt, 
gets off the boat, gets wasted. He says, you know, I really doubt that God's enough for me. I need to get drunk. Gets wasted and stumbles his entire family. Abraham, he's following God, yes, by faith, but he doubts. He goes to Egypt and, and he looks at Pharaoh and this, this rich, powerful Egyptian, and he says, oh, I doubt that God can protect me. And he says to his wife, hey, pretend you're single. Pretend you're not my wife. And his wife ends up getting taken by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh almost sleeps with her. God barely rescues her before it happens. By doubt, Abraham fails. Sarah, by doubt, laughs at God. God says, Sarah, you're going to have a son. And she goes, ha, not going to happen. I'm 90. She laughs at God. And then she says to Abraham, you should just sleep with my maid and have a kid with him. Jacob, by doubt, steals his brother's birthright. He says, God's not enough for me. I can't trust God. I've got to get what's mine for myself. Moses, by doubt, murders an Egyptian man and lashes out in anger against the Israelite people. He's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years with the Israelites, and he doubts, and he says, God, I don't know if I can do this, and he smashes this rock with his staff and just shows people a misrepresentation of who God is. Uh, Rahab, by doubt, lived as a prostitute. This woman who, yes, hid the spies, but her life was a life of sin, selling herself out for pleasure. Gideon, by doubt, yes, he was called by God to defeat his enemies, but before God convinced him, he was hiding in this wine press from his enemies. Uh, Barak, by doubt, he's supposed to be this great general, but he won't go into battle unless Deborah goes with him. Samson, by doubt, sacrifices his strength for this prostitute, Delilah. He, he, he says, I don't trust God enough to take care of me. I don't trust God enough to give me a good marriage with my wife. And so he goes off with this prostitute, and she says, tell me the secret of your strength. And he gives it to her. He sells himself out. And David, by doubt, committed adultery and many, many murders. Do you get it? Do you see? Do you see? Do you get it? This is remarkable. This is remarkable. These people were in the hall of faith. They're, they're considered the heroes of our faith, but look at their failures. Why, why are they allowed in? Why, why are they able to be in this hall of faith? Well, guys, it's, it's a beautiful picture of one of the main themes and threads running through the Bible, which is despite humans' constant failures, we are made righteous by God's efforts and not our own. Do you get that? Do you get it? Are you with me? God looks at us and all of our failures and says, you can be considered someone in the hall of faith if you just trust me. But God, I failed. I messed up. I doubted you yesterday. I messed up. I made a mistake. I sinned. Every time we sin is really a moment of doubting. Do you realize that? Every time you sin, you're saying, God, I'm doubting you're enough for me right now. I am doubting that you can make me happy, and so I'm turning to this to make me happy. We are full of doubt. We, you might be here today and think, oh, I never doubt. Every time you sin, you are doubting. You are literally ridden with the disease of doubt. And yet God looks at you and says, I can use you. I can use you despite yourself. It's amazing. God works in spite of our doubts to make our faith stronger. Every time you doubt, God looks at that and says, that is an opportunity for me to overcome your doubt and prove to you my strength. It's so fantastic. A guy I really look up to, uh, Pastor Tim Mackey, over at Door of Hope, he's the guy who runs the Bible Project, one of the guys who puts that stuff together. He said this, um, we talked about this in a study we did recently called Praying Through Doubt. Tim says this, it is so important that we learn to deconstruct our doubt 
to go to the source of it. This is really important. Think of it. If your car is not working, it's not because the car was built with a flaw. It's because something inside the car is wrong. So what do you do? You take apart the car and you see what is wrong. In the same way, when we doubt, often it's because something has happened to us. There's been some sort of wear and tear. There's been some sort of circumstance in our life that has caused us to break down inside. So what do you do? When you doubt, you need to deconstruct your doubt. How do you do that? Well, Doubt is often not a result of deep-seated beliefs. It's not like we just go around with these deep-seated doubts that we've had since birth. No, a lot of times, doubt is because circumstance shook those beliefs. Something happened to you that shook your beliefs. So what you need to do is examine the root cause of your doubt versus what you know to be true. For instance, let's just deconstruct this, okay? So maybe you've grown up with this idea, God is good, but now you're doubting. Deconstruct it. What's the root cause? Perhaps it's the divorce your parents are going through. Maybe you've grown up thinking God loves me, but then you're doubting. Deconstruct what? Maybe it's because of a sickness. Maybe because it's a sickness in your family or because a sickness in your life is causing you to wonder if God loves me, why would this happen? Maybe you've grown up thinking God is just but then you're starting to doubt. Deconstruct. What's the cause? What's the cause? It's because maybe you've been exposed to seeing how they're starving kids in other countries, and they have so much to go without, and it's like, if God were so loving, like, why wouldn't he help them? Uh, Maybe you think God is fair. God is fair, but you're starting to doubt. Well, deconstruct it. Maybe it's because you're jealous over your friends. Maybe you're jealous of your enemies, people in your school who have it way better than you, or the guy who got the girl you wanted, or the girl who got the cheerleading captain position that you wanted, or fill in the blank, but it's not like you just were born with this defect of doubt. Something happened in your life that is causing you to doubt. Maybe you grew up thinking sin is wrong, fill in the blank, some sort of sin, but now deconstruct it. What's causing you to doubt? Well, it's because you're starting to realize, wow, sin is fun. Maybe there's certain sins you didn't do it then when you were younger, but now there's certain sins you've been exposed to. Someone in your life exposed you to a sin and said, hey, try this, look at this, do this with me, and you always said, I would never do that. I would never do that. I'm a Christian kid. I would never do that. But all of a sudden, somebody introduces it to you, you compromise, you give in, and now you're starting to doubt. Why would God try to keep this from me? This is really nice, and this feels really good. The enemy begins to feed our doubt And he wants us to completely surrender and give in to it. Here's the example. Thomas. The Whoa, double door is open. That was weird. Holy Spirit? Thanks, Sophie. You got to pull it and then kind of lift up. Like lift, yep, and then pull. Oh, yep, and then that right there. Perfect. Nailed it. So we got Thomas, right? Thomas is a guy who for three years has believed Jesus is king, Jesus is powerful, Jesus can do anything. In fact, he watched Jesus raise other people from the dead. So you'd think that he'd believe, but he's had this traumatic experience. He's watched Jesus bleed and die on the cross, and in his mind, he's thinking there's no way anyone could come back from that. He bled all of his blood out. They stabbed him even after he's dead, and blood and water came out. They put him in a tomb. Like, how, I understand how he could bring other people back from the dead, but how could he bring himself back? That's impossible. I'll believe it when I see it, but for right now, he's having this crisis of doubt. Guys, when we have crisis of doubt, what we need to do is go to the source, ask good questions, and seek the truth. I want to show you guys a video that kind of breaks down how we do this. The Bible is reliable. Or is it? 
What do you do with doubt? Good Christians do not have doubts. You're not a very spiritual person, are you? How dare you question God? You ask too many questions. You must not be saved. Is it wrong to doubt the Bible? Well, what is doubt? It's your mind trying to learn, adjusting its grip on truth. As you move through life, some of your ideas about reality become more firmly positioned in your mind, while others become less certain. These need to be examined from time to time. If they're reaffirmed, they're inserted back into your belief system. If not, they're thrown away and replaced with a new, updated understanding. This ongoing process of establishing or revising enables you to keep growing in your understanding of reality. But it requires that you ask good questions and diligently seek answers. But is it okay to question the Bible? According to the Christian worldview, God has revealed himself through the Bible and through the natural world. Because God is a rational mind, the natural world is structured in a way that's accessible to rational minds. Thus, humans created in his image, having rational minds, can approach the natural world rationally, asking good questions and searching for answers. In the same way also, the Bible, being an expression of God's mind, is structured in a way that makes it accessible to our minds. So, humans can approach the Bible rationally, asking good questions and searching for reasonable answers. But if we do question the Bible, will it hold up or not? Well, let's take an example. Does archaeological evidence support the Bible? It's a good question. It would be a real problem if none of the people or places in the Bible ever existed. The fact is, over the last 200 years, archaeologists have uncovered a vast amount of evidence confirming the existence of people mentioned in the Bible. They've also located all the major biblical cities and geographical features in the Bible. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. So there's our answer. Archaeological evidence supports the historical reliability of the Bible. By asking honest questions and looking for answers, we gain confidence in the Bible. The problem's not asking questions. The problem is not asking questions. Because if you don't have questions, you can't find answers. So raise your doubts, ask good questions, search for answers, and grow in your understanding and confidence in God's Word. So I love this. I love that video. I hope you enjoyed it. Because in the video, we see that God invites his children to know him better through questions, which really is how you get to know anyone in a relationship. Like when I went out on my first dates with my wife, we asked questions. We got to know each other better. 
God isn't afraid of your questions. He wants you to bring your questions to him because through those questions, you can get to know him better. He's not afraid of them. He invites them. The Bible actually says, Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, and the door will be open to you. And it's so much better to bring your questions to God instead of just saying, you know, God works in mysterious ways. The problem isn't the questions. The problem is not asking them. It's holding on to them. You know, think of doubt like this. Your doubts can either, they can be basically, your doubts are like a pile of bricks. Think of it that way. Every time you doubt, pile of bricks just right in front of you. So, you know, what a pile of bricks becomes is up to you, right? Right? What a pile of bricks becomes is up to you. What happens if you do nothing? If bricks just pile up in front of you, what happens? What's built in front of you? A wall. If these bricks just pile in front of you, now you've got a wall of separation between you and God. Doubts come. It happens to everyone. There's, there's no one that I know who doesn't doubt at some point. Something happens. Either you learn some new information that challenges your view of God, or you go through an experience that challenges your view of God. And so what happens? If, if, if those bricks, if nothing is done with them, then you've got a wall. But what happens if you deconstruct the bricks? If you take the bricks and you start pulling them apart and arranging them, what can you do? Well, you can build a bridge. You can build a bridge. And so you get these bricks of doubt. If you do nothing with them, wall between you and God. But if you work with them, and if you say, I'm going to go to work in deconstructing these doubts, finding out what's the source, why am I doubting, and then asking good questions. God, is this true? Steadying, going to the source, seeking truth. Then what happens is what once caused you to doubt God in the end makes you believe in him more. It draws you closer to him. You will face doubts. The question is, what will you do with them? I'm going to give you guys a real-life example of this. Here's a real-life example from the passage of deconstructing doubt so you can learn how. As I was studying this passage, something was said in it that made me go, that is weird. Causes me to doubt in some ways. Not really a good sign if the pastor's reading the passage and trying to teach it and he runs into something. So, you know... Do I just skip over it, or should I teach it? I want to teach it, and so I had to deconstruct it. So I'd like to go through the process with you so I can teach you guys how to do it. Here is the passage, John 20, 23. Did anyone catch this? Did anyone think about this and think that's strange? Jesus, remember the moment where he breathes on all the disciples? (sighs) I hope he brushed his teeth because, remember, he was dead for three days. And then he came back, and then he breathed. And they're all like, like breathing it in, like, oh, thank you, Lord, for this holy breath. If I just hope he had a mint. Um, after he breathes on them, he says, John, John 20, verse 23, he's going through his disciples. He's giving them this great commission. He's saying, guys, you need to go out and preach the gospel and change the world. And then he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Did anyone, by show of hands, anyone think this was odd? Anybody? You did. When, when he said it in the video, were you like, that's weird. I'm just going to skip over it. Aaron probably knows. I don't need to know. I didn't know. <laughs> I, I saw it. I read it. And I was like, what on earth? What is this? This is, this is strange. Is he saying that Christians can forgive sins? Like, not just like, because we know we can forgive sins. If Trevor comes up and kicks me in the shin, I can either hold a grudge towards him for the rest of my life and plot his murder, or I can forgive him. I can forgive his sins. So that's not a shocker that we can forgive, but what Jesus says here is if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
I don't like that. <laughs> like, I'm just being honest. Like, I read it, and I'm like, oh, I don't like something the Bible says. Does that make me a bad Christian to stand up here on stage and say, that is weird, and I don't know how I feel about it? But it's the Bible, and I can't just ignore it. I can't just move past it. It's in the Bible. So I have to figure out what it means. And does it trouble you? It should, because, uh, you know, to think that somebody in our life could not forgive us and then God wouldn't forgive our sins, that's very strange. Like, if you showed up to heaven and, and God's like, you can't come in, you're like, why? I'm a Christian. And he says, well, Jeff never forgave you for the time you shot a spitball at him in class in second grade. Like, wouldn't you be bummed? So we have to figure out what this means. Our entire faith is based on the forgiveness of sins. It's super troubling, and we can't just let it sit, because it'll just become this brick wall of doubt between us and the Lord, so we have to build a bridge right now. So let's start deconstructing. That's what I want to do with you guys. So first thing, you guys have an amazing tool at your disposal. It's Google. You can search things in the Bible. Like back in the day, people had to go to like the Bible college library and search through a million books until they found what they're looking for. You can literally be like, what does this mean? And you can find articles written and you can learn and you can grow. So I went to Google and I typed in John 20, 23, Greek text analysis. Here's one of my best recommendations for you guys. I know none of you guys are Greek or Hebrew scholars, neither am I, but it's, a, it's fun. It's fun to study it because when you go to the original languages, you can learn so much about what was actually said. A lot of times our English translations don't do it justice. I don't always talk about Greek words to be smart and nerdy. I do it because I want you guys to understand what God meant when he wrote the Bible. So you pull up the first result, and what do you get? You get this list of Greek and Hebrew. I just got this off Google. This is text analysis of Greek and Hebrew. So you've got the verses right here. So if you notice, the language is kind of out of order. If of any you might forgive the sins, they are forgiven them. If any you might retain, they are retained. So that's Greek grammar structure for you. So thankfully, we have an English translation. But let's find out what these words actually mean. So the word sin, I circled that. If you go to the Greek, you'll notice it's number 266. You want to click on the numbers. And you get to the word hamartia. So the word hamartia is sin. So what do we see with the word? What is sin? Hamartia, sin. Sin is a failure. Definition proper definition, so the Greek understanding of sin is missing the mark. So a lot of times when we think of sin, we think of a list. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't have sex, don't have fun, don't smile, don't do anything. <laughs> like That's how we think, of, we think of sin as these lists. But the Greek and Hebrews had this understanding of sin that was this archery illustration. So there'd be archers who'd line up and they'd shoot these targets. If you missed the mark, it was like, oh, sinner. That's what people would say. You sinned. You missed the mark. So it's this idea that there's a mark. There's something you were supposed to hit, and you missed it. Now, if you've, re if you've read John, you may have noticed something interesting. Jesus has some interesting things to say about sin. Let's see what he says. John 16, verse 9. So a couple chapters ago, Jesus is talking about sin. When he talks about sin, how does he describe it? Does he say, we need to talk about sin? Um, the prostitutes are sinning. The tax collectors are sinning. They're lying. They're stealing. They're sleeping around. Like, does, does he lay out this list of sins? No. The way that Jesus talks about sin is he says, the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. John 16, verse 9. So that's interesting. Because what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that the chief sin of the world is unbelief. Not hate. 
not anger, not lying or stealing, not wrong sexuality, unbelief. This is super important because we see here that Jesus' view of sin is not about a list, it's about a main root cause. So Jesus says, what he's basically saying here is that unbelief is the disease All of the other sins, lying, stealing, sleeping around, abusing drugs and alcohol, like all of these things is symptoms of the root disease of unbelief. And it really does make sense when you think about it. Because every time you choose to sleep around, every time you choose to abuse drugs, every time you choose to sneak out the window and lie to your parents, every time you choose to cheat on your homework, what you're really doing is you're exercising your unbelief. Your unbelief that God is enough that God can give you everything that you need, that God can give you all the pleasure that you need, that God can get you, through, get you through school without cheating, that God will provide you with a husband or wife and you don't have to sleep around now to enjoy those things because he has them for you later. Every time we choose to sin, we're choosing to indulge the chief sin of the world, which is that we refuse to believe in God. And that really puts a lot of things in context because you might say, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm in church. But Jesus is saying, every time you sin, you're choosing to not believe in me. That's the main cause, and your symptoms are your sin. So think about this. Let's, we're deconstructing, right? This is fun, right? Are you with me? Is anyone with me? Yeah, okay. So, so if unbelief is the root of sin, and remember, the, the thing that we're freaking out about here is if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, they are not forgiven. What, we still need to figure out what that means. So if Jesus is defining sin as unbelief, belief. Let's see what else we find in the Greek. So we go back to the passage. Uh, We already looked at sin. Now let's look at the word forgive. So the word forgive in Greek is the word aphiemi. Aphiemi. Funny word. Aphiemi. It's number 863. So you click on that number and what do you get? So we go in and we see what does it mean to forgive? To forgive. Aphiemi. Forgive. Definition. Send away let go or release. That's, that's the language we're using here. So we think of forgiving sin in the context of God excusing us from our great crimes. But the Greek word here better explains it. He's saying release. Whoever you, if you release anyone's sins, they are released. If you do not release, they are not released. So what's he saying? The trouble is with our English translation, we read it and we think, whoever you won't forgive won't be forgiven. So in that context, if we believe that, then who's responsible for forgiving sins? Us. And nowhere in the Bible, there's no other verse. Here's another thing. When you're deconstructing, you have to remember the whole Bible supports the whole Bible. So there's never going to be some verse in the Bible that you can't go to other passages in the Bible and support it with. So there's never any verse in the Bible that says that humans have the responsibility to take away the penalty for sin and forgive it. So let's think it through. What have we learned? If sin is unbelief, if we're thinking of sin as unbelief, and if forgiveness means to release the meaning, the original Greek meaning kind of comes out. See, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that not that you have the power to send people to hell. What Jesus is saying is, You have the ability to release people from their prison of unbelief by sharing the truth. And that actually works so much better in the context. If you think about it, he's in this room, he's breathing the Holy Spirit into them, and he's saying, you now go out as my disciples and share the good news. And then he says, if we read it in the context, he's saying, if you preach the gospel and release anyone from their sin of unbelief, then they'll be released. 
But listen, if you do not release them, they're going to still be in bondage. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. If you do not release them, they will not be released. So that's really what he's saying. Are you with me? Does that make sense? He's saying if you don't go out and preach the gospel, people aren't going to hear it. And if they don't hear it, they're going to be imprisoned by their sins, by their unbelief. He's not saying it's your responsibility to set people free from their sins. Only Jesus can do that. But what you can do is you can give them the truth and set them free from their unbelief. That makes way much more sense. So Jesus speaks this during his commission, and he's saying, you are called to release people from their sins, their sin of unbelief. See, this is why I love deconstructing doubt. But it can't be all that we do. We have to do more. Evan Wickham, my old youth pastor, had this to say. Modernism is I think, therefore I am. Postmodernism is I doubt, therefore I deconstruct. That's what we just did. Christianity is I love, or I am loved, therefore I love. Oops. There we go. I love that. I love, or I am loved, therefore I love. Yes, it's important to deconstruct your doubt, but even more important, we have to always use God's love as our reference for truth. It has to be your foundation and your rock and your home base. Perfect example, Peter is sinking. Do you guys remember the story? Out in the boat, Jesus is on the water, walking. The disciples have never seen anyone walk on the water before. They are doubting. They think they're going to sink. They think they're going to die. Now Jesus is walking on water, and they're like, he's a ghost. He's going to murder us. This is not good. So what does Peter do? Peter has this moment of great faith. He sees Jesus walking in the water, and he steps out, and he's walking on the water. Can you imagine that, walking on the water? But then what happens? He has a moment of great doubt, because he looks, and he sees the huge waves, and he starts to sink. And what happens? Well, we can read it in Matthew 14, 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What was the one constant throughout this entire thing? A lot of things are changing. First Peter's in the boat, then he's walking on water, then he's sinking, then Jesus is pulling him back out. What's the one thing that stays the same in that story? It's the love of Jesus. When Jesus is walking towards him, he sees Peter in the boat, Jesus loves him. Peter steps out on the water, Jesus is stoked. My Peter is taking a step of faith, I love him. When Peter doubts and he starts to sink, is Jesus like, you punk, get back in the boat if you can. You know what, Andrew's my new number one. You stink, Peter, I hope you drown. No, Jesus loves him. As Peter is doubting, Jesus is loving and reaches in and pulls him out. Guys, in, this, in a few moments, I think Peter shows us in these brief moments an illustration of, for some of us, our entire lives. For some of us, we start out loving Jesus. We're in the boat. We feel safe. Then God calls us to take a step of faith. And all of a sudden, maybe this has been you. Maybe this is your story. You grew up in a Christian home. You grew up in the faith, and God told you to take a step of faith. And then you, you really committed your life to Jesus, and you really believed in him, and you walked forward at camp, and you gave your life to him, and you stepped out of the boat, and you were walking on him. But then you got out on the water, and you saw the winds and the waves of sin and desire and temptation and doubts and discouragements and trials, and now you're sinking. And the whole time, Jesus looks at you, and he looks at you with love, and he says, come on, let's get back up. Let's keep going. Does Jesus abandon him when he doubts? No. His hand is always there for the taking. 
No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, whether right now you've trusted God more than you ever have in your life, or maybe you've doubted him more than you ever have in your life, listen, listen, I think there's some of you here who need to hear this. Maybe right now you're doubting more than you ever have, and you don't want anything to do with Jesus, and you don't care about him, or maybe you're so hurt and you're so wounded by something that happened in your life that you wonder, why would God want anything to do with me? Or maybe you've sinned so much that you're like, you know, I'm just going to put on this fake face where I say I don't care about God, and I'm just going to pretend, but really, I, I, it's, it's me being afraid of him, and I don't think that he take me back, and he doesn't love me. You need to know that his hand is always like this, and he wants you to take it. And he's smiling at you, and he loves you, and he says, come on, my son, my daughter. I don't care if you're doubting. I have enough belief for the both of us. If you're wrestling with doubt, you need to remember that wrestling with doubt led Peter to these important truths. It led him to the truth that, one, if I trust Jesus, I can walk on water, and two, if I doubt Jesus, he will be my rescue. I hope this is giving some of you guys freedom here today. No matter how big your doubts, your God is bigger. Dominic Doan, uh, a pastor that I like as well, said this, as hunger prompts your mind to find food, doubt prompts your mind to find reality. I love this. Don't just sit with your doubts or you'll sink or that brick wall will be built up in front of you. Deconstruct your doubt and get to work. Wrestle, search, ask, seek, knock. So back to Thomas. Let's talk about Thomas for a minute as we wrap up today. Thomas had a nickname Doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. Maybe you've been called that before. There's this negative view towards doubters. Oh, you're just a doubting Thomas. You just need to believe in God and trust him. But Thomas says, you know, I won't believe it unless I see it. Think, think about this though. We look at Thomas and we say, Thomas was a doubter. He was a chump. Man, that guy, he he needs to be more like Peter. Strong Peter, walk on water Peter. Well, think about this. Think about this. Who saw Jesus at the tomb last week? Who was the first person to see him? Who? Mary. Mary sees Jesus, she runs and tells the disciples, they run and they see the empty tomb and they still don't believe, and then she runs back and tells all the disciples because Jesus appears to her in a flash of light, she runs back, Jesus is alive, does it say they jumped up for joy? No, there's nothing, it, they didn't believe her. Straight up, they're just like, whatever Mary, you're a woman, we don't believe you. It's literally, it was, it was a sexist culture, no, like women couldn't even testify in court because they wouldn't be believed, the men just thought they were hysterical. These men doubted. At the start of this chapter, what does Jesus do to doubters? He walks through the wall. He comes in the room. Imagine, you're, you think Jesus is dead. You're in this room, and all of a sudden, whoo, he walks through the wall. He's like, I'm here. Check out the holes in my hands. Does he do it angrily? Does he bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Look at my, no, no, no. He appears to them in love, and he shows them proof. Listen, uh, the whole thing about doubting Thomas is, is, in my opinion, a false view to just pin it all on Thomas because really all the disciples doubted. All of them doubted, and they continued to doubt. This is what's crazy. Look at Matthew verse 28, or Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, this is after all this happens. This is like right before Jesus goes back to heaven. So Jesus has been with them for months now. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
They're like, he's right there in front of them and they're singing songs and worshiping and they're doubting. But then what does Jesus do? Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, but therefore I'm gonna give it to you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. How does Jesus respond to doubting disciples? He visits them. He speaks kindly to them. He, takes the, he talks to them patiently. He addresses their doubts. He breathes the spirit into them, and he gives them a mission and purpose. David D. Flowers said this, Jesus' willingness to accommodate Thomas and the other disciples, I would add, belief or unbelief is a reminder that God can handle our doubt and that the rationalist doesn't need to see, touch, or run a lab test in order to believe in the resurrected Christ. Jesus said, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This is not a plea to accept what goes against reason, but it's an invitation to discover a faith that goes beyond it. The examples of Thomas is that the stubborn skeptic in all of us can be used used by God. And I love this. Guys, just a few more words. Wrestle with doubt, but don't give in to it. The Bible says the one who doubts, the one who gives in to doubt, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will, it was once said. I think that's huge. And I've seen it in my life. I've seen it times where I was going to go out street witnessing. And literally, like, I know I'm supposed to be the street witnessing guy, you know, who got you guys all into it. But I'll tell you, literally, every time I do it, I doubt. When we did the talents challenge a couple weeks ago, I doubted. I was like, there's barely any kids here. Like, we have such a small team. We have so many bags to pass out. Like, this isn't going to work. No one's going to get saved. Guys, we saw some, like, we, we passed out, like, 85 bags. We saw people reading the gospel testimony letters. And, and we passed out by the wave some of the letters that the students here wrote. And, and because of those letters, some students came here the next week on Sunday and heard the gospel message and got saved. They came in the back right before the study started, sat down, listened to the message, and then we prayed with them afterwards. It was, it was crazy. I'll tell you, that entire time I was doubting. We were out there, and I was like, this isn't going to work. God isn't with us. I'm so scared. But he was with us. Guys, God loves you, and he wants, like, don't let doubt hold you back. UFC lightweight champion says this. His name's uh, Conor McGregor. He says, doubt is only removed by action. If you're not working, then that's when doubt comes in. And I, I love that. Guys, I know I've been beating this dead horse, but it's because I really want you to get it. When doubt comes, don't let it just stack up in front of you. Don't. Don't let it become a brick wall. Deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct. Build the bridge. Get to work. If we're going to do a whole series. As soon, when we're done with John, we're going to do a series, I think either on Wednesdays, but possibly on Sundays. We're going to do a series on questions. Questions that you guys have, we're going to let you send in. Deep questions, doubtful questions. We're going to let you guys send them in, and I'm going to study them every week, and I'm going to come back with answers from the Bible that show us how we can put our trust in God even through our doubts. And I'm excited about that. I hope this has blessed you guys here today. To wrap up, I want to show you guys one more video, and then we'll be done. And um, I'm going to show you guys just a video of a young man who's expressing the journey that God took him on through his doubt. And I, it blessed me a lot, and I think it'll bless you. I remember my little niece ran up to me and told me, we learned about Jesus today. 
And I could tell by her smile she was so excited to learn about this man that she did not quite know yet, but she knew without a doubt for it to be true, because after all, Mommy said so. And that was the first time in my life that I looked into the eyes of a child and envied them, because she had no idea of what it feels like to doubt. What it feels like to have your entire belief system overload with skepticism to never know the day that you would finally be able to live beyond the shadow of a doubt. I've lived in its darkness for so long. It, it seems like I have all the right questions, but never enough answers, and my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms. God, every night I lay my head down to sleep, the city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage. Can you help me? Last year, my grandmother laid in a hospital bed like a bus stop waiting for God to come pick her up. I had never seen such pain and such confidence living in the same eyes when she told me, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know who I belong to, and I was so happy for her. And something inside of me wished that somehow before she passed away, she could pass down her confidence in God to me like an old family picture. I remember sitting in the back row of a cold sanctuary, crying, because I desperately wanted what the preacher was saying to be true, but my doubts were preaching a sermon of their own, and the streams of my tears turned into oceans of frustration, I remember sitting in a college classroom, and the only thing being tested is my faith in God. The only thing passing is my hope. Me, in a backpack full of fear, nowhere to go, no one to help me unpack. I sleep, I sleep, but I never rest. These lines around my eyes are not wrinkles, they are maps that show you the winding roads that lead to my pain. I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because honestly, I've considered quitting, but where will I go? Back? There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls. When I pray, I'm not questioning you. I just got questions. Don't leave me here. Don't. Don't leave me. My child, my child, when it seems like you have all the right questions, but never enough answers, and your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms, I told you. Faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and turn mountains into open highways. Faith comes by my word, so maybe you've cuffed your ears. My child, don't be childish. 
but consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible. Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for? Before you doubt me, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts, and you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that I've walked from. Truth is, truth is, you know I'm here. You know my truth, and you're scared. Scared of what that means. Scared of what that should cost you. That one day, they will all laugh at you, laugh you right out of their classrooms, and scorn you out of their courtrooms. But my love serves as an eviction notice to anxiety. When they cast stones, my love cast out fear. I am the author and finisher of your fate. I've never started a work that I will not finish. I am the one. I am the one who will give you courage to stare death in the face and say, how dare you try to scare me? I know who I belong to. And when it feels like you are drowning, when it feels like you are drowning in a sea of your questions, just know I'm there. I'm there. Like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you and these hands that took holes will hold you and when I told you that I would love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married. For better or for worse. Through sickness and in health, through faith and through questions, till death brings us closer, you are mine. You are mine, and I am yours, I promise. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much, God, that you are so much bigger than our doubts. And God, we thank you for the freedom that can be found in just this reality that we don't have to hide our questions and doubts from you and from one another because you're big enough to handle them because we can bring them to you and ask questions and we can seek and knock and find truth. God, I just want to pray for anyone here today who's doubting, anyone here who's struggling, that you would bring them to the place of truth, that you'd move them out from under the shadow of a doubt that they'd come into the light. And as they walk through that shadow, God, help them to realize that you're right there with them, holding their hand, loving them, not judging them, not angry at them, not just wanting them to straighten up. You take them as they are. God, I pray for all of us who doubt, myself included, that you'd help us to continue to find your truth Help us to grow in knowledge. Help us not to let the doubts form a brick wall in front of us. But Lord, let us build a bridge. We love you, Jesus. 
We ask that you'd continue to do the work that you're doing in us. In your name, amen. Amen, guys.